This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Europe, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 15, Controlling the Backlash. One route to an answer would be to consider what, if anything, might be said or done by ordinary people who object to the mass immigration into their societies and some of the negative consequences that this brings with it. What would a decent movement that expressed such concerns look like? Would it be allowed to have any working class people? Ought everybody involved to have university degrees or are non-university educated people allowed to have concerns about the direction of their country without being branded a Nazi? In 2014, Chancellor Merkel could have started such a process herself. Instead of using her New Year message to condemn Pegida for having coldness in their hearts, she could have instead told the German people that the Salafists and other radicals to whom Pegida professed themselves opposed have the most appalling coldness in their heart, a problem for which Germans must find an answer without themselves in turn shunning all the world's refugees. It was the same response of the German political establishment to the recently created Alternative for Deutschland. Concentrating on attacking the ADF's or AFD's views and supporters while massively increasing the causes of their concerns was a deeply short-term policy. Yet attacking all expressions of concern and failing to address or in any way stem the cause of them, to attack the secondary problem and not the primary problem, became a European habit in these years and a sign of significant further problems to come. The mainstream European media has the same affliction. Having internalized the Rushdie Fatwa, the Danish cartoons, and Charlie Hebdo lessons as much if not more than anyone, Europe's media know that alone among subjects, there is a physical as well as reputational risk to delving into Islamic matters. While they hide behind good taste defenses on such issues, all the time there are easier themes for them to revert to. The, quote, rise of the far right, end quote, in particular, is such a trope in journalism that the far right is said to be rising even when it is collapsing, as it did in Britain during the last decade. Nevertheless, the powerful trope is often given further color, such as whether the right or the far right are also said to be on the march. The headline claim that, quote, the far right is on the march across Europe, end quote, has been used promiscuously in recent years, whether the people in question are right wing or not. As the writer Mark Stein pointed out at the, at the time of the rise of Pim Fortoin in 2002, saying, quote, gay professors on the march, end quote, just doesn't have the same ring to it. At the same time, an obsession with the alleged prevalence of European racism means that any day's news is dominated by such questions. Any ordinary day, picked at random anywhere in Europe, will include headlines such as that on the front page of the Dutch daily De Volkskrant, in the summer of 2016, with the question as the headline, quote, how racist is the Netherlands, end quote. The answer in discussion is usually very, and puts the onus for any failures of integration or assimilation squarely at the door of the native Europeans. So, Europeans are blamed for what is happening to them, are denied any legitimate way to object, and the views of the majority are made to appear not just dangerous, but marginal. Of all the countries in Europe attempting this experiment, Sweden is one of the most interesting, not least for having the most rigidly enforced political and media consensus of any country in Europe. Despite or because of this, politics is shifting in that country faster 
than anywhere else. On first glance, the situation in Sweden can appear to be different from that of other European countries. The only country to have had comparable rates of immigration to Germany in 2015, Sweden, unlike Germany, does not seem to be bowed down with the weight of its history. On the contrary, it presents itself on the terms of its political class, as a liberal, benevolent, humanitarian superpower. With its population of under 10 million, this mostly northerly outpost of Europe is famed for its social welfare spending, high taxes, and high quality of living. But the problems it has encountered with immigration are the same as everywhere else. Like everywhere else in Europe, in the aftermath of the Second World War, Sweden began to take in migrant labor. Occasional waves of refugees during the years of communist rule in Eastern Europe, notably in 1956 and 68, persuaded many Swedes that they could not only take in these people, but that they were successful at integrating them. Throughout this period, Sweden's reputation as a safe haven for the world's asylum seekers grew and helped burnish the country's self-image as well as its image around the world. Yet, beneath the veneer lies another truth. For although at first glance Sweden can look as though it might be taking in migrants for genuine and unalloyed reasons of good-heartedness, the guilt of Europe only runs more subtly through Swedish society than it does through its southern neighbors. Having had a minimal colonial history, the country does not suffer any serious legacy of colonialist guilt. And having remained neutral during the Second World War, it does not suffer guilt for military action. Yet, guilt still hangs around those years. Although Sweden presents its neutrality as an example of the moral high ground, the further one moves from the 1940s, the more shameful that studied neutrality becomes. In the clearer, it also becomes that Sweden did not remain as neutral as it maintains. Not only because it permitted trains with Nazis and supplies to travel across its territory during the occupation of neighboring Norway, but because it provided Germany with raw materials that allowed the Nazis to keep fighting. The aftermath of the war brought further bruises to the country's self-image. The extradition from Sweden of of soldiers from the Baltic states who had fought against the Soviets was one small but significant episode. The lesson for the Swedes was that refugees returned can act as a moral taint as much as refugees not taken in the first place, whereas refugees staying in Sweden once there must be an unalloyed good. Or, so the Swedes thought for a time. Sweden's pride over its ability to be a safe haven for the world's asylum seekers began to shift in the 1990s when the country took in tens of thousands of refugees fleeing the wars in the Balkans. For the first time, these refugees brought significant social problems. Bosnian gangs became a regular feature for the Swedish news. Despite this warning sign, migration rates in the first decade and a half of the 21st century accelerated exponentially. The swift increase in the Swedish population, including population growth solely accounted for by immigration, led to the usual strains on public services. The official figures show a population of 8 million in 1969 and a projected population of 10 million by 2017, with, on current growth rates, the population reaching 11 million by 2024. This requires Sweden at normal levels of population increase to be building 71,000 new homes a year to meet the needs of the country by 2020, or 426,000 new residences in total by that date. Although there is a presumption that the Swedish people, like their political elites, were always in favor of such migration, the facts suggest otherwise. 
1993, the newspaper Expressen broke one of the great taboos of Swedish politics and published a rare opinion poll on the country's actual views. Under the headline, Throw Them Out, the paper revealed that 63% of Swedish people wanted immigrants to go back to their home countries. An accompanying article by the paper's editor-in-chief, Eric Monson, noted that, quote, The Swedish people have a firm opinion on immigration and refugee policies. Those in power have the opposite opinion. It does not add up. It is an opinion bomb about to go off, and that is why we are writing about this starting today, telling it just like it is in black and white before the bomb goes off, end quote. As though to prove the point he was making, the only result of this opinion poll was that the owners of Expressen fired that paper's editor-in-chief. When migration to Sweden began to swell significantly in the 2000s, the public discussion was kept in check, not only by the uniformity of the political class, but also by the political uniformity of the Swedish press. Perhaps more than any other country in Europe, the Swedish media viewed discussions related to immigration with a sense of disdain as well as danger. Research into the political sympathies of Swedish journalists had revealed that in 2011, almost half, 41%, were sympathetic to the Green Party. The only parties to come close to them in the affections of journalists were the Left Party, 15%, and the Social Democratic Party, 14%, and the Liberal Conservative Moderate Party, another 14%. Only about 1% of journalists expressed sympathy for the Swedish Democrats, which is within the margin of error. Yet, in 2016, this party that was so reviled by the journalistic class was the highest-ranking party in the Swedish polls. The story of how it got there reads like a cross-section of modern Europe's dilemmas. When the party was founded in the 1980s, It was an unarguably racist as well as nationalist movement. Its alliances and policies were in line with genuine far-right movements across Europe, including those advocating racial white supremacy. It was regarded in the way that the British National Party was viewed in the UK and never really had a meaningful voice in politics. In the 1990s, there was a conscious effort to reform the party, with the throwing out of people involved in neo-Nazi movements. Then, in the 2000s, a group of four young men, mainly born in the 1970s, looked for a way to break the Swedish status quo. Jimmy Ackeson and his colleagues had the choice of either forming a new party or taking up over a party that already existed. They chose the latter option, and throughout the 2000s worked to repel remaining far-right elements from the Sweden Democrats and make it into a nationalist but non-racist movement. No credit was given to them for doing so. The media and other politicians continued to describe the Sweden Democrats as far-right, racist, and xenophobic, and continued to portray them as neo-Nazis, when in fact, they had thrown all those out. In the 2010 general election, the party won more than 5% of the vote and entered parliament for the first time. The other parliamentaries were aghast and treated the new MPs as pariahs, refusing to have any dealings with them, cooperate with them, or even talk to them. Yet, in the years after that election, the issues of immigration and identity that the Sweden Democrats were raising came to the fore. Up until then, the country had experienced the same symptoms as the rest of Europe, although arguably worse than anywhere else. Its culture of self-negation was especially strong. In 2006, the country's Prime Minister, Frederick Reinfeldt, from the conservative Moderate Party, had had proclaimed, quote, "...only barbarism is genuinely Swedish." 
All further development has come in from the outside, end quote. The churches in Sweden reinforced all mainstream political views. For instance, the Archbishop of the Church of Sweden, Auntie Jacqueline, among other prominent clergy, insisted that the country's migration policies must keep in mind that Jesus himself was a refugee. With a weary predictability, this era also witnessed an exponential rise in anti-Semitic attacks in Sweden. As the Muslim immigrant population of the city of Malmö grew, so the number of Jews in the city, which had once been a haven, began to dwindle. Jewish buildings, including the chapel of the Jewish cemetery in the city, were firebombed, and by 2010, when the city's Jewish community had fallen to under a thousand, as many as one in ten local Jews were harassed in a single year. Non-Jewish locals took to escorting kippah-wearing Jews to and from services and other communal events. Despite the same warning signs as everywhere else, from 2010, migration into Sweden accelerated rapidly. Potential migrants from around the world saw Sweden as especially desirable, with new arrivals not only given housing and welfare provisions, but an especially attractive family reunification program. In the 2014 election, the Sweden Democrats more than doubled their share of the vote, becoming the third largest party in the country, with almost 13% of the vote. And just as everybody could see what was going on, the Swedish press accelerated their efforts to avoid all stories that could feed the narrative of the Sweden Democrats and bolster their support. The results were predictably tragic. In the summer of 2014, at the We Are Stockholm Music Festival, which took place as normal, oh, this music festival took place as normal, except that at the event, dozens of girls as young as 14 were surrounded by gangs of immigrants, particularly from Afghanistan, molested and raped. Local police covered up the case, making no mention of it in their report of the five-day festival. There were no convictions, and the press avoided any mention of the incidents. Similar organized rapes by migrant gangs occurred at music festivals in 2015 in Stockholm and Malmö, among other cities. The figures were extraordinary. Whereas in 1975 there were 421 rapes reported to the Swedish police, by 2014 the annual number reported had risen to over 6,500. By 2015, Sweden had the highest level of rapes per capita of any other country in the world after Lesotho. When the Swedish press did report these events, they willfully misreported them. For instance, after the gang rape of a girl on a ferry from Stockholm to Abo in Finland, it was reported that the culprits were Swedish men, when in, in fact they were all Somalis. It was the same story in all of the neighboring countries. Research published in Denmark in 2016 showed that Somali men were around 26 times more likely to commit rape in, than Danish men, adjusted for age. And yet in Sweden, as everywhere else, this subject remained unbroachable. It took the 2015 New Year's Eve attacks in Cologne and the scandal of that cover-up to be unearthed for the Swedish media to even report on what had been happening for years at Swedish music festivals and other events. Not only was a cover-up by the police finally exposed, but the cover-up by the Swedish press was revealed as well, thanks to the work of a number of web magazines and blogs. All of this was happening against a background of daily new arrivals, even in 2014, which meant that in August of that year, the Prime Minister admitted that with asylum seekers coming into the country at such a rate, quote, we will not be able to afford much else. But it's really people fleeing for their lives, end quote. 
That Christmas Eve, the the then ex-PM gave a television interview in which he said that Swedish people themselves are uninteresting, that borders are fictional constructs, and that Sweden belongs to the people who have come to make a better life there, rather than belonging to the people who have lived there for generations. Even by such standards, what Sweden went through in 2015 is unheard of in the country's history. As with many... With as many as 10,000 people entering Sweden on some days in September of 2015 after Chancellor Merkel's announcement, for a period, the country was almost paralyzed. Although 163,000 people claimed asylum in that year alone, an unknown number of people entered and disappeared into the country without a trace. People visiting laundry rooms of their buildings in the tenements of Malmö found migrants living there. The city already had the lowest tax base of anywhere in the country, with areas such as Rosengard already with few non-immigrants and some areas with as few as 15% of residents in employment. Yet, these are not unpleasant areas. They are better provided for than working-class areas in numerous other European cities, and until these areas became almost entirely immigrant-based, many working Swedes had saved to buy houses there. But any prospects for integration were already dire. Even before 2015 in Rosengard, not one child in the local school had had Swedish as their first language for 14 years. Even before 2015, the emergency services refused to enter these areas without police escorts because residents attacked the ambulances or fire engines. Becoming alarmed at the large concentrations of migrants in some cities, in 2015, the Swedish authorities tried another tactic. They decided to shift recent arrivals to remote towns and villages, particularly in the north of the country. They put up 200 migrants in the village of Undrom in the Soleftea region, a village with 85 inhabitants. They put 300 migrants in the village of Trensum in the Karlshamn region, a village of 106 residents. Other remote villages tripled in size overnight. Of course, the migrants had not come to Sweden to live in such isolated and strange areas, and police often had to drag them out of the buses that they used to transport. Yet, Swedish politicians insisted that their country had plenty of space to house migrants. Only once they had accelerated their migration policy did they recognize the pitfalls of this idea. The next year's budget anticipated the cost of migration to be in the region of $15.4 billion, Swedish kroner, indirect costs alone, and so constituting only a portion of the true cost. To put that in context, the Justice Department for 2016's budget was 42 billion kroner, and the defense budget 48 billion. Sweden is a rare country in this respect. During times of global downturn, it has been able to run a budget surplus. Now, in a period of growth, Sweden faces the possibility of having an of a an economy with a deficit. Faced with such realities, even the clearest humanitarian justifications for this began to wither. Among the new arrivals in 2015, there was a particularly large number of undocumented, unaccompanied minors. Although there were children among them, social workers said that perhaps three out of these five children claimed that their birthdays were on the 1st of January. And of course, the vast majority, 92%, were male. It was the policy of Swedish officials to ignore these facts even when they were staring them in the face. But in August of 2015, 
an asylum seeker whose application had been turned down, murdered two Swedes with a knife in an Ikea store in Vesteras. As the months passed, the patience of some Swedes began to snap. In October of 2015, asylum centers in Munkeldal, Lund, and a dozen other places across the country were set alight by locals. The government moved to have such all such locations kept secret in the future. But the following January, when a young female social worker was stabbed to death in an asylum shelter by a child migrant who turned out to be an adult, public opinion further soured. The issue of so-called no-go zones became a major issue within the country, with officials furiously denying that there were areas of Sweden where the authorities could not even enter, even though local residents and emergency services who regularly came under assault in such areas knew this to be the case. That August, an eight-year-old boy from Birmingham, England, whose family were from Somalia, was killed in a gang-related grenade attack while visiting relatives in Gothenburg. As with the Gothenburg car bomb a year earlier, which had killed a three-year-old girl, ethnic gang violence of this kind had become routine. In 2016, it transpired that as much as 80% of the Swedish police force were considering quitting because of the dangers that their jobs now entailed in dealing with the increasingly lawless, migrant-dominated areas of their country. As with every other country, these migrants had been portrayed by the Swedish government and media as consisting almost entirely of doctors and academics. In reality, a huge number of low-skilled people who did not speak the language had, had been imported into a country with very little need for low-skilled workers. And while the government reluctantly tightened up its border procedures, political and community leaders continued to insist that there should be no such borders and that immigration could be limitless. Archbishop Jacqueline insisted that Jesus would not approve of government restrictions on immigration. In the summer of 2016, whilst in Sweden, I went to a regional conference of the Sweden Democrats Party, held in Vesteras, in the center of the country. In the manner of an academic conference, several hundred party members gathered to hear a day of speeches. Party members mingled with the party leaders, and although everybody was in agreement that they were nationalists, there was not the remotest sign of racism or extremism. There was much talk among party members and leaders of how to halt the government's immigration policies, but the mainly young leadership were striking in private and public for their moderation. In private, they wanted to know their visitors' thoughts on Viktor Orban and other European leaders who, like them, objected to mass migration. How savory were they? which were allies and which were actually more extreme. This party that the media in Sweden and abroad continued to portray as far-right and fascist seemed as worried about the actual far-right and fascists as everyone else. Whatever their views, the party's recent success is hardly surprising. The country's politics have swiftly changed because the demographics have so swiftly changed. According to the Swedish economist Dr. Sanadaji, himself a Kurdish-Iranian origin, in 1990, non-European immigrants counted for just 3% of Sweden's population. By 2016, that figure had increased to around 13-14% to and is now growing at between 1 and 2 percentage points a year. In Malmö, Sweden's third largest city, non-ethnic Swedes already constitute almost half of the population. According to Sanadaji, within a generation other cities will follow, and ethnic Swedes will be a majority in all the major cities, partly as a result of immigration, partly as a result of higher birth rates among immigrants, 
and partly as a result of ethnic Swedes abandoning areas where immigrants dominate. Not the least interesting aspect of surveys of Swedish attitudes is that even while so-called white flight goes on, the average Swede still says it is important to live in a multicultural neighborhood. Indeed, those who have moved away from multicultural areas are just proportionately likely to say how important it is to live in them. A gap clearly exists in Sweden, as elsewhere across the continent, between what people think and what they believe they are meant to think. And while the attitudes of Europeans are continuing to move in the same direction at varying speeds, their political leaders still continue to take decisions that will, move, that will make those, change, those views change faster still. Sweden is merely an extreme demonstration of that trend. Throughout 2016, as Europe's political and societal plates moved, the leadership of Europe continued on the same inexorable course. By the summer of that year, the deal with Turkey had slowed the migration through the Greek route with the result that there was an upsurge of movement into Italy. That August, 6,500 migrants were rescued by the Italian Coast Guard in the waters off Libya in a single day. The Coast Guard carried out more than 40 missions, just 40 rescue missions, just 12 miles from the Libyan town of Sabratha. The passengers on the boat, mainly from Eritrea and Somalia, cheered as they were picked up. By now, the people smugglers did not even bother to fill their boats with sufficient fill, fuel to get even halfway to Lampedusa or Italy. Knowing that they would be intercepted earlier by European rescue vessels, the people smugglers were filling enough boats, were filling the boats with enough fuel only to reach those rescue vessels, and the Europeans took over from there. The politicians continued to pursue the same policies and import more and more people into what they themselves recognized as a failing model. But everywhere in Europe, the public attitudes had begun to change. In July of 2016, less than, a, less than a year after Chancellor Merkel's grand gesture, a poll found that less than a third of native Germans, 32%, still believed in the concept of the Wilkemannskultur, or welcoming culture, and continued mass immigration into their country. A third of Germans as a whole said that the country's very future was threatened by the migration policies, and a third believed that the majority of migrants were economic migrants rather than actual refugees. Even before the country's first suicide bombing and other terror attacks in the summer of 2016, half of all Germans strongly feared terrorism as a result of the influx. Perhaps most interesting was the finding that among foreign-born Germans, just 41% wanted to see a continuation of mass immigration, with 28% of foreign-born Germans wishing it to end completely. In other words, Merkel had even lost the approval of migrants for the migration policy. By the following month, her approval rating had slipped from 75% to just 47%. A majority of Germans now disagreed with their chancellor's policies. In September's regional elections in Pomerania, Alternative for Deutschland, AFD, though only three years old, beat Angela Merkel's party into third place. Such policies were reported as metaphorical earthquakes, but they were in fact the smallest tremors and did not necessarily signify any major change. The European publics had been opposed to mass immigration from the moment it had started to happen, but none of their political leaders from any political persuasion had ever cared to reflect on the fact or change their policies as a result of it. Although Chancellor Merkel had sped up a process, it was only part of a continuum that the continent had been on for decades. 
the effects of all this occasionally became startlingly clear. On the 19th of December, in 2016, in the final shopping days before Christmas, a 24-year-old Tunisian man, Anis Omri, hijacked a lorry, killed the Polish driver, and drove the vehicle through a crowded Christmas market by the Kurfenstendam, West Berlin's main shopping street. Twelve people were killed in the ensuing carnage and many more injured while shopping for Christmas. After escaping from the lorry, Omri made his escape across Europe. Despite being the most wanted man on the continent, he managed first to travel to Holland. Then he managed to enter and travel through France, a country still meant to be on heightened alert, during its second year in a state of national emergency. Then, Omri traveled to Italy, where two policemen in Milan asked to see his identity papers. He reached for a gun and shot one of the Italian police officers before the other officer shot Omri dead. It transpired that Omri, who had pledged allegiance to ISIS before the attack, had landed as a migrant in Lampedusa in 2011. Turned down for an Italian residency permit, he was later imprisoned on Sicily for setting fire to a government-provided shelter. In 2015, after leaving prison, he entered Germany and registered as an asylum seeker under at least nine different names. The failure of local German authorities to communicate with each other, added to Europe's lax external and absent internal border systems, had served Omri well. The same systems had served the shoppers at a Christmas market in Berlin less well. While large casualty atrocities like this caught the headlines and galvanized the European press for a couple of news cycles, all the time the facts on the ground were changing the continent as a whole. The German authorities recorded an additional 680,000 arrivals into their country in 2016 alone. Such continuing mass immigration, high birth rates among immigrants, and low birth rates among native Europeans all ensured that the changes ahead or underway would only accelerate in the years ahead. The German people had demonstrated at the polls that, politically speaking, even Merkel was mortal. But she had helped to alter a continent and to change an entire society with consequences that would play out for generations to come. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.